We're starting a new series starting today on sin and temptation. Sin and temptation. I know nobody here goes through those things. I know we're free, we're so holy, so mighty, so filled with the Spirit of God, so other humanness that we don't even need to hear this sermon. As a matter of fact, we can take our Bibles and we can cut those texts out that deal with ongoing sin and idolatry in our heart and we can just move forward, maybe even go home. But uh, I have a feeling I'm not alone in saying that I still fight sin and temptation. Is that true? Okay. As long as we live in this world, we'll always fight sin and temptation to one degree or another. You can't get away from it. It's part of living in this world and looking forward to the next. But there is a proper way of doing it. And that's what I want to start looking at. Uh, We'll be going through some specific texts each week that look at what sin is and what temptation is. And note that there is a difference, amen? We have to recognize there is a difference between temptation to sin and actually engaging in sin. Big difference. And how the scriptures uh, teach us to handle both. The scripture says a lot about the character and nature of sin. It also says a lot about the character and nature of temptation to sin. That they, uh, they take a forensic look into both. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to look behind the scenes. We're going to get under it. We're going to put it under a microscope. And we're really going to try to analyze it for our edification and for our strength as believers to battle this uh, sin and temptation in this world. Uh, there's a sense of self-discovery about our own personal propensity to certain sins. We're all prone to certain sins. You live in this world long enough. Some people are going to be prone to this. Some people are going to be prone to this. Other people are going to be prone to everything. And uh, the church we're going to be reading about, Corinth, was prone to just about every sin there was. Their culture was saturated with sin. When I think about it, it's not much different than the culture we live in today. Uh, also an awareness to the sins of the culture around us, and that's important too. We have to realize the, the direction the culture is going in and where it can pull us, where it can lure us into, and not even recognize that, you know something, we're, we're getting weak and uh, just by being around, living in the culture that we do. Uh, we'll be looking at the power of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the pleasures of sin. We're going to speak about original sin, the wages of sin, uh, the militant stance of sin that wars against our soul. Sin doesn't go down easy, amen? The origins of temptation uh, from within ourselves and the temptations of others around us. But most of all, the power of the gospel, of God's grace to overcome all these sins, personal and cultural around us, and that we can really steer a straight course to heaven as we keep our eyes focused on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, and that God, Christ is sufficient. I have to let you know that prayerfully, you know that already in your Christian life, that Christ is sufficient. If you are a Christian, no matter what's facing you in personal temptation, Christ is sufficient. I'm not going to give you a methodology this is how you do it. There are certain things we can do, like flee sin. I'm going to give you a person, not a methodology. The Bible doesn't hold out to us a how-to book on not to sin. The Bible holds out to us a living, resurrected Savior 
who lives within us, who directs us, who comforts us, who strengthens us, who gives us hope. That's what we have. We have Christ. Understanding of these promises of God and who Jesus is is imperative to living morally right in this world. As a matter of fact, it's a taste of heaven to come. When we live right with God and we enjoy Christ, it really is a, a foretaste of heaven divine. There should be a sense in our own personal lives at times, we sort of almost get giddy saying, praise God, you know, I'm watching destruction everywhere, and you know, and I, I can see I'm fighting my own temptations, but I know, I know, I know, i got a witness of the Holy Spirit that one day it will finally be over, and I'll be free from the power of sin and the power of a sinful world. Right living is sweet to the soul. There's something very unique It's sweet about it. And any real lasting contentment in this world for a Christian is impossible without it. You can't be really content in this world without a sense of holiness and overcoming the sins of the flesh. A matter of fact, uh, a life without it could never be truly pleasing to the Lord. I have chosen this series on sin because of the problem with, unfortunately, many ministers lately have fallen into sin. Sexual sins and others, I don't know if you... I'm not going to go through it all. I'm not here to bring people through uh, the washing machine. But as of late, there have been many ministers, national ministries that have fallen. Some into sexual sins, some into other personal sins. But they've hurt themselves, they hurt their families, they hurt their congregations. Uh, it's, it's painful. When you see a national speaker, someone who's been used mightily by God, all of a sudden fall into the sins of the flesh... And uh, it, it hurts. It really, really does hurt. And so that has stirred me up to really look into this a little more and to reflect on my own life and to reflect on our own congregation and to realize that I am a man of flesh like anybody else. And the last thing I ever want to do is fall into sin. That's why I openly speak about it. Uh, my wife knows. There's nothing my wife doesn't know about me. There's nothing I don't share with my wife. She's the first line of defense in a life of holiness to me. First line of defense. And uh, because I know I'm a man like anybody else. When I reflect on these situations, it's just a constant reminder that the battle for personal holiness is really never over. It's not over. It's not over until when? Until we go home and be with the Lord. That's when it's over. And the, the quicker we realize that, the more powerful we'll be in fighting temptation. I remember as a young believer, maybe, I don't know, I'm saved over 25 years. It was probably the first two or three years I was really a Christian man. I was in my early 30s at the time, and I remember saying, man, this is hard. Hard. Really, really hard. And I remember crying out, God, when does it end? And the only sense I really have is when I die. But that gave me peace. I don't say that as a sort of, uh, you know, a joke. That It brings me peace to realize, oh, you mean I fight for the rest of my life. I was content with that. I was like, all right, if this is it, then we do it. Fighting doesn't mean a miserable life of uh, self-denial. That is not the Christian way. We will be looking at this over the weeks and months to come. It's not some miserable life or I can't, I can't. It's God changing us so much that we don't want to. Are you with me? That is the Christian way. 
It is not, I can't, I can't, I can't. There's a growing in the Christian man, the Christian woman that says, I don't, I don't want to. That's where the power to come, that comes from, to live a holy life. It has nothing to do with trying to double up your efforts and go to church more and read your Bible more, pray more. All those things are good, but that doesn't do it. There's got to be a settled disposition on the inside that with Christ I can do all things. That I am more than a conqueror. We need to be on the alert. When I read about these national ministries and I look into it a little more, it's disheartening. Uh, but it's not, how can I say... Uh, Surprising, A lot of good ministries out there. And we all need to be careful. Fall into sin is no small matter. Especially for a minister or a leader in a church. It's no small matter. This is not something that you kick under the carpet and make sure nobody hears about it. We will look at the Bible's way of how, what happens when a minister falls into sin. When a leader falls into sin, God does nothing but hide it under the carpet. It's out there hanging in the scriptures for thousands of years, both Old and New Testament, as a warning for all of us. Be careful, lest we fall. I want to just take a moment now and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that deals with this matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As I get it, I'll be there. Something's wrong. My technology's going crazy again. I got the little wheel. There it is. Okay, here we go. Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that's the Old Testament, were all under the cloud, that's God's presence, and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the book of Numbers. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil, as they did. Be not, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put, to Christ, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Father, again, bless the sermon. Bless your people. Open up our hearts. Let us take a fresh, new look into the our own propensities to sin, Father God. Let us take a fresh new look at the culture we live in, the people around us, Father God. Let us really understand how awesome, how wonderfully, personally awesome it is to live for you in this idolatrous world we live in today, Father God. Let us know the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the truth to wash us clean, to cleanse us, and to strengthen us, Father God. Let us know the sweetness of your presence as we live in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, falling into sin is no small matter and carries with it consequences for everybody, especially leaders, whether they're national leaders, local pastors, parents, everyone, especially anyone who leads someone else. Sin always hurts not just self, but others. Others. Especially people in positions of responsibility. Before we go through these verses, we need to understand one major fault that this Corinthian Christians church had. We need to understand something. I'll speak about that. And also the historical circumstances that surrounded them that caused Paul, the apostle, to write as he did. Both things are common to you and I today. I want you to know that. It's a commonality. Wherever man goes, sin follows. So it's it's common no matter if it's with 2,000 years uh, separated from it, it. It's the same. The Corinthians, number one, were filled with pride. Who were filled with pride. They were a blessed people. They were gifted with every spiritual blessing there is. They were a mighty spiritual church. They could prophesy. They had words of wisdom. They had words of knowledge. Uh, they had a deep understanding of who Christ is. There were prophets there. There were apostles there. I mean, it was a, a, a marvelous church. There were miracles taking place in this church. And this church was founded in a place called Corinth. It was a cesspool of morality. It was a moral cesspool. Is what it was. Corinth was a, a seaside sort of port town, a sailor's town. All paganism was there. Uh, it was deeply saturated in the sexual sins of the day and so on and so forth. And it was in this place that Paul went and preached. And it's in that place that the Holy Spirit did a mighty work. It's in that place where church was birthed. And God took some of the worst of the worst and turned them into Christian men and women. And gifted them powerfully to carry the message. It got to their head. It got to their head. There were divisions in the church. Someone followed Paul's teaching. Someone followed Peter's teaching. Another one followed Apollos' teaching. Someone else followed someone else's teaching. There were divisions. They were all all over the map. There was also unchecked sexual sin in this church. As much as God had saved them and gifted them, they were still acting like what? Like the culture around them. They were still acting like they were not saved anymore. There was unchecked sexual sin. There was lawsuits against each other. One believer was going against another believer before the court of law as though it was nothing. The Lord's Supper, what they got together for the sacraments, would turn into wild parties. There was no... Uh, the discrimination. They couldn't discern that this was a holy feast. To get together in the name of the Lord, they were turning into a drunken 
party. They discriminated against the poor and the disenfranchised. Sex was starting to build in this church. And this is the attitude behind the warning here. We can't miss that. There's an attitude of self-sufficiency. There's an attitude that we're saved. There's an attitude that God loves me. And I can just do about anything anymore because I'm saved by grace. I understand grace. I understand I'm weak. I understand I can do anything. And what they did, they took it to the extreme. You and I might be prone to just cast this church aside. But not God. Isn't that nice to know? That God died for them. God loved them. God gifted them. And God was not through with them yet. And that's beautiful. Because it's a reminder of all of us. That God is generally not through with us. Even though we struggle, especially early in our Christian life. That God is patient. But he's strong. He's thorough. This is the attitude behind the warning in this text. But historically, Paul has been addressing the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Now, me and you, if we read 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11, you know, you start reading about food sacrifice to idols. We're 2,000 years removed from that, but at least most of us are, unless you're coming out of some kind of uh, satanic background, you know, where they're still doing stuff like that. For me and you, I've never seen a chicken with its head cut and, you know, uh, sacrificed. You know, then sell it in a meeting place. It's, to me, that's foreign. But to 2,000 years ago in Corinth, in Greece, that was a common practice. It was a pagan land. This was the common scene in Corinth. Temples were everywhere, and most of these believers come out of a, a pagan background, except for some of the Jews who got converted. They came out of the synagogue, but everybody else came out of a pagan background. The problem that calls Paul to write this, uh, these memorable words, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, is that these believers thought that they could just continue dabbling, just, just continue dabbling in cultural things without being overcome by its sins. That's the spirit behind this. They didn't realize they were new creations. They didn't realize God was calling them to holiness. They didn't realize that they can do all things through Christ, through strength. They went around as business as business as usual. They were dabbling, feeling the way out. This is the self-deceptive nature of sin, and it's the self-deceptive culture they lived in. And so do we. We live in a self-deceptive culture. We're self-deceived. We have a great propensity. Human nature has a great propensity to self-deception. We really don't know how to call ourselves out. But thank God through the scriptures and through honesty and through the fellowship of one another and through the Holy Spirit that God brings us, calls it out on the mat, he shows us our faults, and he cleanses us up so that we can truly enjoy him. Let's go to our text. And as we go through this, we'll uh, get behind the scene a little more. If we can just bring that up, verses 1 to 5 first. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. To address the issue of uh, paganism that was making its way in the church, Paul goes on to use the Old Testament scriptures. Now, to me and you, you don't see much of a distinction between the Old and New Testament. But you have to remember something. There are many times people will come to me, let me say it in a negative sense, but the Bible's 2,000 years old. That was 2,000 years ago. It's not relevant for what? Come on, it's 2,000 years Jesus walked in. Things got to change a little bit. I saw that Jesus has to catch up with what? The times. Get with it. Come on, that's old-fashioned. It's uh, antiquated. It's old. It's rusty. Polish it up. Get a new act. Get a new face. But Paul just quoted something from the Old Testament that's 1,500 years old. Corinth could have said, Paul, that's 1,500 years ago. You're quoting a man named Moses. Get with it. This is one of the hubbubs of of the Mediterranean world. Corinth, that was the place to be. And you're quoting something that happened 1,500 years ago? Get with the times, Paul. But this is the beauty of Scripture. Sin hasn't changed. Man hasn't changed. Temptation hasn't changed. I can go back 2,000. I can go back 4,000. I can go back 6,000. Nothing's changed. The relevance of Scripture really meets man's great problems. Self and sin. Self and sin. So that's just a side note of the relevance of Scripture, how Paul is correcting something in a Greek culture using a Jewish Bible. How many people in the congregation you think knew the Jewish Scriptures? Does Paul say, oh, let me, pardon me. Let, me, let me try to talk you into the Old Testament that it's real, and then I'll talk to you about God. It's a given When it comes to the scriptures, you preach and the Holy Spirit makes it real in the hearts of his true people. To sit here and try to give an apologetics class on why to believe in the Bible would be just too much time. We preach the way Jesus preached, the way Paul preached, the way the prophets preached, and God's people listen and say amen. Because it's a relevant truth that speaks to the heart of life. He pulls the rug right from underneath their prideful feet, thinking that God was well pleased with them. They were gifted, they were doing a lot of things, they were all come together. But God wasn't. He's dealing with the pride that was in them. And that he would discipline their sinful practices. Paul is giving a true warning to this church. He shows from history, this is not Paul's opinion, I'm not getting up here and sharing my opinion. Let me tell you what I think. Paul is quoting scripture, authoritative scripture. This is the way God dealt with his ancient people Israel. This is the way he deals with us today. He shows from history how this was something, this wasn't something new under the sun. God has dealt with this stuff before. 
These examples from the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus reveal that Jesus was also with them, just as he was with this New Testament congregation, this New Testament congregation that were, some of them were murderers, chapter 6 teaches us. Some of them were thieves. Some of them were liars. Some of them were adulterers. Some of them were fornicators. Some were homosexuals. Others were sodomites. There's a list of, of, of vices that most of these people came out of that God forgave them. He washed them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He regenerated them. He, he justified them. He bring them as orphans into the kingdom of God. He became their father. They were once alienated from God. Now they're the people of God. They were once estranged from God, serving Satan, serving sin, serving self, and now they're serving God. All by grace. All by grace. These examples reveal that Jesus was with them in the Old Testament, just as he is with the Corinthians. It's represented in the sacraments. Paul establishes a coherence here between the Old and the New Testament. He uses a typology, I'm not going to get into all of it, but I'll mention it, as the vehicle. He mentions the water, he mentions a rock, he mentions manna. He mentions the cloud. He mentions baptism. All represent what New Testament believers experience upon conversion. That's what I experienced. I experienced something upon conversion. Something happened one day to me. Something, the light went off. I didn't have to be talked into it no more. I knew God was real and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I knew it. No one talked me into it. I came into church one day singing songs. I left a converted new man. No one did nothing. No one talked me into it. I heard a message. I'm a sinful man and I need forgiveness. It's the same thing they heard. And they were converted in the heart. They experienced something. Upon that experience, I did what they did. Every true Christian does it. I want to be water baptized. Water baptized me. I want to tell the world I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to Christ now. I want to tell the world I'm a new creation. I have old tendencies, but I have a new desire to live for God. That's conversion. To have a common experience. The Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the Corinthians, in the book of Corinthians, and you and I today, every true Christian, all the way going back to Cain, or Abel, I should say, know God's deliverance, knows God's protections, knows God's cleansing of the soul, knows God's provision, and know what it is to have a brand new start with God. That's salvation. Represented here by water, rock, manna, the cloud, baptism. It's typology. It signifies a deeper work of God on behalf of the believer. But even so, here's the point. Even though that is all true, but that doesn't mean God cannot be displeased. That we can displease God by our activities ingratitude living in old sins God loves but God has expectations on his sons and his daughters he goes on to verse 6 
Speaking about what we just spoke about in the book of Exodus and Numbers. Now these things took place as examples. The Greek word is type. Types for us or examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. It's written for a reason is what he's saying. Listen closely to what Moses wrote down and what Israel experienced. It's there for a reason. It's an example to us. It means there were early examples of situations that will recall later in history. That God designed to teach his people lessons. God in his omniscient mind, his sovereignty, can do something 4,000 years ago to help me and you today. Is anybody being tempted today? Is there anybody in this room struggle with temptation today? Read your Bible and God will show you how he's going to meet you the same way he met you, met his people 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago. Because temptation still needs the same vehicle. We need the grace of God. I don't need uh, behavioral modification I don't need medication. I need God's grace to meet my weak need. Don't miss what's going on. God dealt with Israel. Not just to Israel's sake. 3,500 years ago. But for the Corinthians' sake, 1,500 years later. And for our sake today. It's written for us. God allowed his ancient people to go through something. To help you and I today in our personal life. It was written as an example to us today. To motivate us and stimulate us to love and holiness and good works. That God is in our midst just like he was in their midst. Nothing has changed. Morality does not evolve according to the political whims of society. It's a constant. It's a moral constant. It does not change like God does not change. It's not open to popular opinions or a new poll or a new feeling. Morality is etched into the character and nature of God himself. Does not change. It does not evolve. And it's not open to polls and popular opinions or people's feelings. God forbid morality was a thing of feelings. But yet, we live in a culture where morality is what? It's about feelings. I feel this is okay. No one's being hurt. No one sees. It's, it's okay. It's. I feel good. Not about feelings. Idolatry and sin is a recurring reality today as it was 2,000 years ago in Corinth, as it was 3,500 years ago when Moses led the people out of Egypt. It just looks different from age to age, that's all. Different shape, different size, call it something different, but it's the same. It's sin and it's idolatry. Paul cited in these verses four practices that got the Israelites into trouble with God. And we're going to go through them. And remember, he's writing these four uh, practices that got the Israelites in trouble with God 
to strengthen New Testament Christians 2,000 years ago and to strengthen me and you today. So let's be strengthened by the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Here's the first one. All of them were possibilities for the Corinthians that fraternized with the pagan world around them. They're all possible for me and you today in the pagan world, the neo-pagan world we live in today. It's still a pagan world that they just put a new twist on things. He says this in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And he quotes Exodus 32, I believe. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Quoting Exodus 32, 6, he showed the Corinthians that sinful practices represented in the words rose up to play with a common reaction to idolatry. This church that was saved out of idolatry just thought that, you know, I can still dabble with some of the old friends. I can still hang out in some of the old places. I won't fall prey to the consequences. I'll just, I'll be a new person in the old times. Paul's saying, be careful here. Be careful how you deal with the past. Be careful how you deal with the people that aren't Christians. Be careful. That doesn't mean you can't be there. But you have to be careful. You are prone to falling into the same sins you used to commit. You're prone to fall into the same sins Israel used to commit. And you're prone to fall into new sins you've never done before. Many a Christian have been overcome by sins they thought they would never be engaged in. Some of these fallen ministers would never think they were going to fall into adultery. Ever. National speakers, writers, prolific writers. Men that led thousands and thousands into salvation and sanctification. Who never thought it would be possible they'd fall into sin. Be careful when you think you stand. Be careful that you think you got your act together. Sin is deceptive and it's powerful and it's beguiling. Be careful that you stand, Corinthians. Be careful that you stand, 21st century minister. Be careful that you stand, 21st century Christian man and woman. Be careful, lest you fall. Dabbling in all things and dabbling in the culture. It's not innocent. Two thousand years ago, these things that were dabbling in were pagan celebrations. But understand something: pagan celebrations with hedonistic expressions to it. These are parties that turn into wild parties. They were wild hedonistic parties. Today, Christians need to be mindful of what seems to be some innocent party, some innocent bar, some innocent couple of drinks. Listen, Paul wasn't saying that you can't go to a temple. Paul was saying you don't go to the temple. You go there and you can buy the food, but you don't touch anything else. A temple with its food sacrificed idols was a sort of convenience store. 
You can go down to the local temple, and there was a party the night before. They sacrificed the bull. They rose up, drank, and played the harlot. And then you go the next day, and you buy the food. But if you get too close, be careful. You might hang around a little too long. Is it okay for a Christian to have a drink if you don't have a problem? Is it okay for a Christian to go for, uh, to the bar? You better be careful. You better be very careful. Is it okay for a Christian to hang out with people at love wild parties? You better be careful. You better be careful. Because you're going to wake up with the consequence the next day. If people love hedonistic expressions of their pagan celebrations, be careful that you're not sweeped up into it. That's what Paul's saying. The same admonishment goes for you and I today. We need to be so mindful of what seems to be so innocent. It's not innocent. It's very easy for me not to drink. I'm a drunk. And I'm unashamed to say it. I gave it up. I can't do it. Don't want nothing to do with it. It's easy for me not to get caught up with it. I don't have to play the game. I cannot do it. God delivered me from it. God forgave me of it. Drunkenness is sin. Drug addiction is sin. It is not just a disease in one aspect of the disease, but it is sin. And I'm finally not just free of it. Most of all, I'm forgiven for it. That's what's important to the Christian. That's right. Sure, I can go into a bar and talk to friends. But I know when to get out. Sure, I can go to a party where there's alcohol. But I know when the party's over for me. Sure, I can be around someone smoking pot. And they're saying, do you mind if I smoke pot? I said, knock yourself out. I'm not smoking it. I don't care. I go, go ahead. Go make a fool of yourself. And I sit there and I love them. See, God has given me that after many years. I'm on the golf course and they're all potted up. And they think I'm going to be offended. I'm the minister and I should run for the hills. But I'm like just loving them. I'm not getting caught up in their windows. But I'm there for them. One day they might say, why are you different? And then I can tell them about Christ. But, you know, there's a wisdom that comes with that. There has to be a profound, not just wisdom, but an ability to know that that part of my life is over. There's nothing there. That doesn't mean I'm going to go to a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning and hang out to 4. There are certain things we have to be careful of. Just a couple of drinks, just a couple of innocent tokes of the pot, a couple of pills. But what it turns out to be at the end of the night is nothing less than idolatry. Period. This kind of activity Paul's talking about here has a slow kill to it. You don't see it. Yeah, it's all happy. Everybody's happy. We're all happy. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden you're happy. You know, how did I get to this place? I was so happy. My life is ruined. It's not innocent. At all. There's a slow slow kill to it and it can wear out the best of believers over a long period of time and it brings God's discipline he's not pleased he's not pleased
he moves on to verse 8. He says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Clearly this was taking place in this church because chapter 5 addresses it twice and chapter 6 addresses it twice. We are now in chapter 10. The Old Testament passages that speak about these things have a sense, now this is important, Paul is leaning on the Old Testament, it has a sense that they were led into these practices, he's going into the book of Numbers right now, and that, that others seduced them into these practices. The Israelites knew they came out of that. They knew God had something God, God had something new for them, but they were seduced by the culture around them. Some Christians for sure have participated in fornication that unbelievers had lured them into. If I'm around a certain type of person, if I'm in a certain type of environment for any length of time, it can wear down the best of men. Surely those ministers that I have in mind right now were not planning on getting drunk and fornicating and committing adultery, ruining their marriages, ruining their families, and ruining their congregations. Of course they were not thinking. They were not planning this. But sin is very enticing. There's something about scratching the sinful itch. There's something about stirring up the hornet's nest. There's there's some kind of unrighteous, unholy, ungodly satisfaction with sneaking around in sin. It's part of being a sinner. We sneak around with our sins. Mankind loves and hates his vices at the same time. Proverbs says that stolen bread is sweet to the taste. There's something desirable about it. Steal it. Eat it in secret. Some kind of self-gratification. God disciplines for this. And that's what Paul is saying. Be careful that you stand, Corinthians. You practice this kind of sexual immorality. You practice this kind of drunken behavior. You're, you're a baptized believer. You believe in Christ. You're leaning on Christ. You're trusting in Christ. I'm going to give you an Old Testament example of 1,500 years ago that this is what he did to his own people. Had he led out of the wilderness, he led them into the wilderness. He loved them, but yet he disciplined them on the spot for trying to test him. As a pastor... I feel that many believers just don't know how serious this issue is. We live in a church. Let me tell you something. There are churches you can go to for years, decades. They really never speak any length about sexual sin. And there's a reason. The church be empty. They scare the people. Some people might get saved if they did. But if they did, the numbers would go down. I'm talking about making a stance against sexual sin. A real, hard, biblical, New Testament stance to be holy as God is holy. It's an epidemic. An absolute epidemic. Many are self-deceived in the church. Many ministers are self-deceived. There's a way of dealing with sexual sin. You do it with the grace and the word of God. 
You can't beat it out of someone. You showed them the better way. Paul says, let me show you a better way. That's all I need to hear. Show me a better way, Lord. I love you. I'm weak on the inside. I've got many temptations, but show me the better way, Lord. I want to please you. I want to go to bed at night saying I please the Lord. I want to wake up in the morning knowing I'm sober from sexual sin. I'm sober from drugs. I'm sober from alcohol. I'm sober from idolatry. I want to wake up and say, praise God. I got no friends, but I got the Lord. This is great. My family thinks I'm a nut. My friends think I'm a nut. All the old girlfriends think I'm a nut. Praise the God. I must be a Christian. This is great. No one wants to talk to me no more. It's it's becoming easier to live holy. No one comes near me anymore. We'll look at this problem of self-deception on these issues in a later sermon. We touched upon it today as the text touched upon it. But the third thing he says here, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. I want to pull up Numbers chapter 21 and I want to read this text in 2149. Uh, it gives us a lot of insight into not just what was going on in Corinth, but what's going on in our life today. From Mount Hor, they went. They set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. That's nice. Everybody God just delivered from Egypt. They're impatient all of a sudden. It sounds like New Testament religion. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God and spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they said. For there's no food There's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Time out. The worthless food was the food God gave them supernaturally. All of a sudden, it's worthless. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And they came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. The nation of Israel tested God by complaining. They were complainers. Oh God, oh God. Even though God provided for them in every way, even when God was testing them for appeal, because every Christian gets tested. Anybody who professes the name of God gets tested. Even though he was testing them, he still provided for them. He was providing for them and testing them as they were on their way to the land of milk and honey. They left Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. They were going through a little wilderness. It was a two-week journey. God wanted to take them there. He just wanted to test their faith for two weeks and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they couldn't get two weeks into the journey. And guess what they were doing? They were complaining. It's all too difficult. You know, as soon as you got to put a little skin in the game, grace gets a little difficult. It wasn't enough for these people. They wanted more. They wanted to go back to Egypt and have what they used to have. They didn't care about being in slavery or being in bondage with the Pharaoh. They just wanted the goodies. They forgot all the blessings of liberty. They forgot the deliverance of bondage and slavery. But most of all, you know what they forgot? what they were saved for. Let my people go so that they would worship me. 
lack of worship for God will weaken anybody. And a proper worship of God will strengthen the weakest sinner. Period. The Corinthians were complaining because they were prohibited from going to the pagan feast with their old friends. But Paul, I want to go to the bar. Paul, I want to go to the pagan feast. Oh, Paul, I want to... Oh, Paul, I don't know if I like this. I'm free in Christ. I can, I can do these things. I don't care what Paul says, I'm going anyway. I don't care what Brian says, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what Jesus says, I'm going. I can handle it. Likewise, Christians are in danger of falling, failing to appreciate all God has done for them in Christ. And understand something. There's something that walks very close with a lack of appreciation. It's despising. Can you really not appreciate what God has provided for us in salvation and forgiveness and eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit and not end up despising Him? That's what they did in the Old Testament. We can feel a sense of dissatisfaction with life rather than a thankful and content heart. A deep appreciation is the only antidote for dissatisfaction. They wanted to go back to Egypt. The two weeks of testing, it got all too hard for them. He goes on to say, nor grumble that some of them did were destroyed by the destroyer. The Bible records ten times that the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt grumbled against God. The meaning here is that there is an underlying, not always verbal, dissatisfaction with God's ways. Not everything that goes on in the believer's heart makes it to their lips. It's important to understand the difference. Grumbling is a telltale sign of selfishness and discontent with what God has given them. We think we deserve more. Surely by now I should... God, where's... Where's all the promises? I, I should have more. I should have this. I should have that. What is it in your life right now that you think you should have? Tell me. I bet you there's not a person in this room sitting here that can hear my voice that right now is not holding God to something you think you deserve. You might not think it's complaining. It's complaining. Christ isn't good enough. Oh yeah, I'll deal with heaven when I get there. I need the goodies. Give me the land flowing with milk and honey. Where complaining deals with we don't have or we deserve more, grumbling is something different. Again, complaining it deals with what we don't have. Grumbling deals with I don't like what you gave me. The manna from heaven, come on. Rock, Water from a rock. Give me something more, God. Oh, salvation, the joy of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins. Come on, I need something tangible, God. Complainers want more, and grumblers don't like what they already have from God. That's the difference. Paul goes on to say, now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. 
We can never forget that when it comes to God's way in human history, we're in the end. The end. People are running around eating, drinking, buying and selling, marrying, getting married. Everybody thinks life is going to go on. That's what right now in America, everybody's complaining, oh, terror, oh, this. They, they think life, we deserve that life just go on. Don't interrupt life. It's, we're happy. Everybody's happy. And little did they know what Christ said. As in the days of Noah, they'll be eating and drinking, buying and selling, marrying and giving themselves in marriage, and then the end will come. And then they'll understand. We're li- I'm watching it. I read the paper. I watch the news. We're living in that time. And we should do what Christ says. When you see these things, look up for your redemption draws nigh. But people can't do that because they're still in love with the world and they're not in love with Christ. They're still grumbling against God because they still want the goodies. The goodies, God. Where are the goodies? Where are the promises that America made me? And God says, I never made you that promise. I promise you the forgiveness of sins. I promise you eternal life. I promised you hope in hopeless situations. I promised moral strength in a moral wilderness. The next step when God moves is a certain judgment on this world. And I don't say that as some self-proclaimed prophet. That's the Bible. This should heighten the awareness of both the Corinthians and me and you to live sober-minded in this world. Let's stop complaining. Let's stop grumbling of the meagerness we think God has given us, like joy, joy of salvation, (laughs) fellowship, a clean heart, genuine forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience. The intangibles of love, joy, and happiness, and peace, contentment. That's what God has given us. And let not complain that we don't have more goodies. Please don't. We need to have a right assessment about life and about God. For sake of time, I am not going to preach the rest of the sermon. You'll have to come back next week. Father, we thank you. God, I want to interrupt what your spirit is doing. Though there's so much more that can be said. We know, Father God, we know that no temptation has overtaken us. That's not common to the Old Testament saint. That's not common to the Corinthians. And that's not common to us today in America. But God, you're faithful. And you will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But with every temptation we go through, God, you will provide a means of escape. That we can endure the temptation. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the promises of hope, for restoration, of eternal life, of the forgiveness of sins, of being more than the conqueror. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me of the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and humility and self-control, Father God. 
I thank you, O God, that our sins do not have to dictate our life, that the weaknesses of our temptations and the culture we live in doesn't dictate how we live, Father God. But your Holy Spirit and the truth that sets us free dictates how we live and how we worship you, Father God. And I thank you, Father God, that all of us would know the sweet joy of worshiping you all alone as opposed to living in a sinful world, Father. God, let us draw closer together with one another and with you in Christ's name.